at Applebee's. My fantasy league is the Apple Bowl. I cooked apple pies at McDonald's. But this apple... What kind of phone do you have? Phone? Yeah. No, I don't have an Apple phone. Okay. That would have been good, though. (laughs) But this apple is somewhat rotten in its core. The skin... To continue this metaphor, it's fine, but as you bite in deeper, it's bad. And that's what we do here on the Brothers Trek about. We bite in deeper. And I'm Matt, coming to you from the past in Austin. And uh, as always, from the city of Houston is my brother Ken. Say hello, Ken. And frequencies are open. They sure are. Well, hey, everybody. Uh, welcome. We are talking this week about the Apple, a uh, interesting sort of uh, episode here that uh, takes an interesting premise but doesn't do a lot with it, I feel like. But hey, we're going to get into it and talk about all that and more. Uh, any uh, preliminary thoughts you have about this episode, Ken? So it, it fits into a lot of the stuff that we've been looking at in our season and a half so far. We we get a little prime directive stuff. This is the primitive culture on the one hand. We're going to kind of admire it. On the other hand, we're going to like want to leave it alone. But then we find out that there's like some malevolent intelligence that's, whether it's a supercomputer or whatever's going on, running the situation. We got to shut that off because we don't let supercomputers run civilizations. That's just not right. That's right. We find that out more and more from the Enterprise crew. That's something they don't like. Well, let me get into the uh, behind-the-scenes stuff here real quick. Max Ehrlich wrote this episode. Uh, he had about 15 years of writing TV, uh, including uh, The Wild Wild West and uh, many anthology shows, you know, all those you know, Outer Limits and all those shows that they had going on in the past. Uh, he wrote a script for that uh, Shatner short-lived series where he was a lawyer, or it was about a lawyer. I don't know. Boston Legal? <laughs> yeah, not that one. <laughs> For the people, don't you remember? <laughs> anyway. Uh, but uh, Ehrlich was everything that Star Trek sought to do. A successful science fiction novelist with a substantial experience in television. He had been championed by many critics for uh, his shows that he had put on the air. And Gene Kuhn wanted him, you know, so that's another good reason to let's go forward with this guy. So uh, he submits his outline for this episode. Gene Kuhn very much attaches to the idea of the Apple, of the Genesis storyline idea. The problem is that nobody else likes this outline. DC Fontana says this. We have in this piece the exact but totally unexciting duplicate of Return of the Archons. 
Nowhere in this piece is there any indication of how Val was built, how he took over the minds of these people. At least Archons was a cre had a creation and a purpose, and was uh, had a creation and purpose that was given to the computer. So here we have a conflict between good drama, good television, right? In which you see something, you can resolve it because you figure out how it works. And then on the other hand, what's likely to actually happen if you're a space traveler? You're gonna show up, you're gonna find some stuff, unless you're gonna like put down an archeological team and like, you're not gonna wrap, you're not gonna like, oh, we, we figured out this planet in 42 minutes great that gives us time for a joke at the beginning and a joke at the end let's go because uh so on the one hand it's satisfying to watch the episode where we figure that stuff there's no questions we oh i understand that was great a great episode but on the other hand it feels realistic to visit a planet to just go oh look here we are this is what we see we don't understand it it's kind of a mystery and we're going to leave it as a mystery because we got places to go. I don't know. I think that might be one of the things I didn't like about this episode was the like, who is Val? Why was he built? What, you know, like yeah. it, we get to the end of it and you're just like, Oh, yeah. okay. So we have no creation story. I mean, I'm with DC Fontana on this one. Right. I'm like, I don't Yeah, this. There's no satisfying narrative arc to it. There's no, problem resolution maybe a twist and then you know they deal with it instead it's more like you know what would really happen if our crew beams down they'd be like well we saw some people with some white hair and then we left fair i think their skin is kind of orangish yeah it's something red orange who knows what that is yeah perhaps they're using a, a tanner that was left behind by some previous civilization <laughs> <laughs> Um, so uh, Cushman, who of course wrote uh, These Are the Voyages, season two, uh, the book I'm always using and getting all of my fine information from, he wrote this, uh, Kuhn wanted to leave these questions unanswered. Oh, how perfectly this fits in. Kuhn wanted to leave these questions unanswered. Val may have been a machine, but who was to say the maker of that machine was not something on par with a god? The machine, after all, could control plants and clouds and throw lightning bolts from the sky. It took care of people who lived in the garden, keeping them free of worry and disease. In return, they worshipped this machine. Yet Val is the villain. And, in a sense, a character standing in for Satan is cast as the hero. <laughs> Kuhn liked the irony of this and the naughtiness. DC Fontana didn't she basically goes on to say uh hey let's uh massively rewrite the story or junk it or hey let's just spend the money to hire somebody else to write something original she wrote <laughs> gene ronberry's message to coon was i'm afraid this is another one of those lightweight outlines which barely contains enough urgency jeopardy or story for even a half hour script Ooh, ronberry coming out with the claws <laughs> The idea that Kuhn liked so much uh, references the tragic end of Who Mourns for Adonis, which, again, is something else we've done in another show, that gods must be worshipped or they die. In this case, worship is symbolized by the service of the primitive natives to uh, perform, you know, 
in the outline, uh, the original outline, they had to oil the machine, <laughs> keep it lubricated, otherwise it would die. If the Enterprise people manage somehow to keep the primitives from rendering their necessary service for the machine, the machine will cease to function. It will die. I would strongly urge you, he's writing this uh, memo to Ehrlich, I would strongly urge you to perfectly clear in the tag that we, that we have simply played out the Garden of Eden allegory in the great machine in the role of God and Satan being played by Kirk, which of course they do. Gene Roddenberry comes back with, yeah, okay, we get it. Neglect kills gods. Fine. Good point. Interesting. But lack of oiling doesn't. <laughs> if our theme is what really is a god, then let's challenge the writer to develop, develop that theme into a meaningful story. At the end, what have we gained? We've gotten the Enterprise back? Is that all? At the risk of being cruel, I think we must ask the writer, was this trip really necessary? Which I guess is something you and I just you know, talked about right now. We get at the end and it's like, Okay, we saw some people with white hair. We saw some tan people. Let's move on. So it creates this dilemma where immediately you, you realize that the, probably the most realistic version of space travel is going to be the most dramatically unsatisfying. <laughs> That's also probably true. We went to this planet. Nothing happened. We surveyed it. It was great. Yeah, I mean, that, there's, there's a reason that... Uh, can't remember his name now. Opie Ron has Howard. not Ron Howard <laughs> has not made movies of the other Apollo, you know, sh shots because we went to the moon, we collected some rocks, came back. Yes, I mean you need to do a whole TV series about the the Apollo landings. Yeah, so you know what ends up happening is that the drama isn't in like what happens, right? It's the what were the technical problems we overcame? Yeah, it's very true. That's very true. It's it's not a story about the thing. It's a story about some other thing in which this was the end result. This was like the hat that we put on it, right? We built mm -hmm. a rocket that was able to go to the moon and come back safely. And by the way, then we actually used it and nothing happened when we did, <laughs> except for that right. one time. <laughs> <laughs> and then we did do that movie. That's right, and, that, and that, that gets to be a movie. Yeah. And so, you know, if you think about it, every kind of drama is going to be one of two kinds of arcs, right? You're either going to have a cool adventure where you overcome some adversary, right? Like mm -hmm. uh, um, the Enterprise incident or uh, Balance of Terror or, uh, you know, probably some of the ones with the Klingons. Or you're going to have something where, you know, a character is different at the end than they were at the beginning. Even if mm -hmm. we're going to reset them in between episodes. You know, something was learned. Uh, some great, like with the Horta, right? That's a great, you know, archy episode in which something, something important is learned. Everything's going to be in one of those two. And, but the reality of space exploration is going to be an awful lot of what we see in the first three minutes of a lot of episodes. We are uh, charting star, star sector Alpha J7. Uh, we are... I was just uh, thinking that, yeah. You know, doing this one thing. Oh, wait, we got a signal. Okay, we're going to stop that now. We're going to do this other thing. <laughs> It'll probably be more fun anyway. Yeah. 
I guess this is a fine example then of like why we don't see those mundane missions. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. okay, what did we do? We didn't learn anything. Let's move on. And to a certain extent, I think we just need to assume that some of this stuff that we get to see in the background, oh, we're going to bring down the geologist in this episode, but he dies in two minutes or something, or he just stands around in the background while Kirk McCoy and Spock solve some ancient mystery. Like, why was that guy there? Other than to like, be there. I mean, he, he almost gets no lines, but that's what they normally do. They bring a geologist and he does lots of work. And lots of the times, you know, Spock and McCoy are standing around going, yeah, it's a new world. So, hey, geologist, you got the report? Okay, 10 minutes. We'll wait. <laughs> uh, is the replicator kind of off this week? I, it feels kind of <laughs> weird. I don't know. Uh, My Vulcan T isn't nearly as good as it usually is. That's right. Geologist, you got a report? Okay. Well, I think we're almost done here, so. <laughs> <You know. laughs> Just 60 minutes of that. <laughs> Kirk, Kirk Stanner Prize. Uh, you know, uh, prepare, uh, you know, beam out here in a few minutes. Okay, thanks. All right, Captain, so, got the report. All right, beam us up. We're, we're out of here. <laughs> Good work, everyone. <laughs> on to the next survey to, planet. Yeah, that's right. We're gonna go on to uh, mundane planet number two. Uh, and you know, you get these mundane. interesting, you know, records that would be only interested to the most obscure interest. Like, well, we found uh, you know ample supplies of uh, tri cobalt and you know mega mega nitrogen. And we'll, uh, we'll be able to bring a mining team down here and make use of that stuff. And then maybe we'll have an episode where they have some kind of trouble and we have to solve it. Maybe they need <laughs> girlfriends. Maybe they got a monster. I don't know. <laughs> That'll be an episode. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> yeah. So Ehrlich writes the first draft, comes out. Nobody loves that one either. So Kuhn then writes him, this is so funny. So Kuhn then writes him a long 21-page single-spaced letter where he gives him kind of a crash course on Star Trek, which would be a very interesting letter to read, I'm sure. You know, like take, get Gene Kuhn's take on, the, uh, on what Star Trek is. But in the book, he gives us this. Uh, basically saying, we're not from Earth, we're from the United Federation of Planets. He goes on to say, we have established in, in earlier shows that sometimes we, it is very damaging to a primitive civilization. It is very damaging to a primitive, come on, primitive? Why am I having problems with this word? We have established in earlier shows that sometimes it is a very damaging to a primitive civilization to understand that we've come from a vast federation of highly advanced beings who in every way are thousands of years ahead of these people. This can be extremely damaging. So, you know, we start to get the idea of the prime directive here is basically what he's writing. I also like how he wraps up the letter with saying, as I told you at the very beginning, you will never write a more difficult show in your life than Star Trek. It is immensely difficult to write. Every point has to be logically perfect. I loved all of that. So also, oh, go ahead. You, you think about where this will go. And of course, next generation takes much more seriously the idea that we're going to screw stuff up. 
if we let them know who we are and what you know that we are going to contaminate their civilization. Well, they—that's uh, what Star Trek Nemesis. No, not Nemesis. What's the second one after First Contact? Yeah, okay, we're both good. <laughs> but that movie, that's one, remember, Data, like, is supposed to be camouflaged, and then he shows up, and... Right. So, Isn't yeah, there's a whole movie based on that Dragons? idea. No. A movie. I think that's, like, the first ten minutes of a movie, and then they go on to something else. No, because then they have to go down and find Data and whatever else. This isn't an episode, this was a movie? Yeah, it was the second movie, though the the one where Jay Frake shaves and him and Troy take a bath together. It's the one with the um, the guy from Amadeus. <laughs> okay. Not wearing a wig, so I, I don't know. <laughs> I can't even remember that guy's name. That's the problem. Because because that would unlock it for me. <laughs> yeah. Right. Everybody, everybody listening is like, "You dummies! It's this movie. How do you not know this?" Yeah, so here we are, still at the beginning of the series, and this idea is out there, but it's not nearly as fully developed. And in in part, you know, I think in the interim you get some anthropological, you know, stuff about the contamination of, you know, and societies that helps them think this stuff through mm-hmm. and then of course we can just go straight back to cook in the pacific on his mission of exploration giving alcohol to the people of tahiti all right hold on i'm still looking up that movie <laughs> or how about francis xavier who uh he's the great missionary to the east he goes to a lot of Portuguese territories, you know, Christianizing places. He's the uh, guy who brings Christianity to Japan. And uh, shortly before he got there, the Portuguese had brought firearms to Japan. <laughs> Whoops. Yeah, so uh, the Japanese ended up by, like, shutting everybody out, getting rid of firearms and Christianity, and remaining a close society for the next 200 years. So a thousand years later, I figured out it was Star Trek Insurrection. It was that one. With F. Yeah. Abraham. That's who I was, the guy I was thinking of. Yeah, but that one's about, like, meeting the Baku. The, the, the nice people who are, like, a gazillion years old. And, like, yeah, we used to be war, you know, civilization people. But, yeah, it got boring. And then they, they've got that, that offspring. The uh, people who all had the phage or whatever it was. Yeah. They all look crazy, and uh, they want the metaphasic radiation back, and they have to go hide in the hills. All right, I'm crazy. I don't know. I must be conflating some some things together. <laughs> oh, that may have let's move on. At the beginning of the movie. But... Uh, let's move on. Let's move on. All right. So, uh, in the script, the first draft. He had, uh, Ehrlich had set up, instead of just, a, you know, the snakehead face cave thing, he had set up the idea of it being like a building instead of just a, uh, instead of like a cave opening or something. 
<laughs> so Robert Justman <laughs> says, oh, wait, no, sorry. First of all, this is uh, this is Gene Kuhn again, back to Ehrlich. He says, uh, we can't afford to we can't afford a building such as the one that you described in this script. Incidentally, it's going to be very interesting to find out how the audience reaction will be to the fact that Captain Kirk attempts to talk to numerous buildings in this script. I don't care how burnished a building may appear in the noonday sun. No amount of talk is ever going to convince the viewer that the building is going to say something in return. <laughs> <laughs> but then it does. Mm -hmm. uh, so Justman, who I wrote always in rare form, I always enjoy his uh, some of his stuff. He says... Um, Hey, maybe we can get Ray Walston to play part, the part of Akuta. <laughs> Please refer to page 38. Notice the tiny electrodes behind his ear. Did the author ever write for My Favorite Martian? <laughs> page 50. Another shot of Val. The script indicated that Val is listening. How do you show a building is listening? <laughs> I'm rapid, rapidly coming to the conclusion that writing for television is the equivalent of grand larceny. <laughs> I love Robert Justman. He's great. Can't the building just nod knowingly? <laughs> yes, it looming. <laughs> uh, that's great. Uh, so taking these ideas, they just pay Ehrlich off to write the script, right? Yeah. I, or, yeah they're like, hey, thank you. You're done now. So uh, Kuhn decides he's going to uh, write the next draft himself. Um. DC Fontana is continuing to say, can we just scrap this? But Justman throws out a few ideas to Kuhn that help fit into the final draft of the script, saying uh, the lightning bolts, for instance, uh, the snake head, uh, the thorny flowers of death. All of these things are Robert Justman ideas. So uh, Kuhn then finishes off the script, and th that becomes the final uh, revised script. Interestingly, making Val a snake head mm -hmm. inverts the original story yeah as, you know by the guy in which kirk is playing the role of satan and like brings them out of the garden of eden with his temptations and whatnot but here it's the ball is the serpent who has tricked them into their ignorance that's a good point i hadn't thought about that the snake because the snake is technically actually kirk right yeah yeah it's funny. See, they should have made it like an ancient tree or something. Right, exactly. So a couple things about some of the actors that are working on the show. We got Keith Andes. He's, uh, he plays Akuta. Since the age of 12, he had been performing on radio. Then in the early 50s, he became billed as a leading man in Hollywood, including 1955's The Great Waltz, where he was uh, played opposite Marilyn Monroe. In... Oh, wait, sorry. No, sorry. He was in Clash by Night, where he was uh, played opposite Marilyn Monroe. So that's cool. Oh, I thought you were thinking of Jack Lemmon. <laughs> right. <laughs> on television, he regularly worked throughout the 60s and 70s, including stints on The Outer Limits, which he did an episode with James Doohan, which is funny. Then we got uh, Celeste Yarnell, who plays Yeoman Martha Langdon. When she was 19 years old, this is the second girl, by the way, on Star Trek who had uh, became the uh, became the Miss Rheingold, if you remember discussing that before. But he, uh, she was the final Miss Rheingold, ending the 20-year uh, tradition of that. Ah. So, uh, 
She was 19 when she won that, but she was 23 when she did this episode. No wonder the quality of acting has declined so dramatically in Hollywood. They no longer have Miss Rheingold to draw from. (laughs) You're so right. Jeez. (laughs) So she has this to say about uh, going on to Star Trek. She said, when my agent suggested doing a guest star role in Star Trek, I was told that that, uh, the casting agent, Joe D'Agosta, was looking for was looking for something really exciting for me, and that Gene Roddenberry was one of the ones who really wanted me to do the show. Surprise! When I came in to learn about this role, it was discussed. Well, do we want to use Celeste for something more exotic, or uh, something where we can really do her up well? And they asked Celeste, "Do you want to do this episode, or do you want to wait for something else?" She said, "Well, in television, you always worry about the axe falling on a series, and right. so you want to take the work when you can get it. The something bigger may never come." And working with an actor, the quality of Bill Shatner was appealing to me. I mean, his take on the Brothers Karamazov was amazing. He was a very good actor. And in the script, I get to carry a weapon. I'm in a fight scene. I'm the romantic interest of Chekhov. And I'm the such a sex education teacher of that planet. So, of course, I wanted to do it. <laughs> She's really funny. And some of the quotes in the book from her are awesome. So uh, then we have that, you know, the couple at the, uh, the, the native couple at the end who, uh, who are the ones who kiss. Uh, that's actually David Soul from uh, Starsky and Hutch. Many years before, obviously. After uh, three episodes, check off his back, sands his wig. His hair, own hair was long enough now. We also get Lieutenant Kyle in this episode, as you may have saw. He, gets to, he plays the navigator in this episode, not just stuck in transporter, transporter room. So uh, Jay Jones, he was the one who played Ensign Mallory. He's the guy who gets blown up by the highly combustible rock. He also played Jackson the Red Shirt, who drops dead in the transporter room at the beginning of Cat's Paw. And uh, he often did many stunts standing in for uh, old Jimmy Dewan there. Ooh, one more interesting uh, little thing here. Uh, When Celeste went to uh, have her fitting... She uh, had just gotten back from London, and so uh, she gets in there and she says, you know, I think we could do this mini skirt just a little bit minier. I just got back from Europe, and uh, all the girls there are winning their mini skirts a little bit shorter. So, of course, Bill Thie said, uh, yeah, hey, let's go shorter. That'll be fun. And uh, another lady was like, oh, well, don't we want to save that dress in case she comes back? Turns out that was uh, old Yeoman Rand's. <laughs> Suit oh. that she's wearing in this episode. And Bill Thies was like, from what I've heard, she's not coming back. Well, it turns out she did come back just much, much later. Many, many years later. We'll have all new costumes by that time. So I don't know if you remember this, but in Arena... Uh, Shatner and Nimoy had uh, an explosion went off too ne- near them, and they both got tinnitus from that episode. Well, guess what? This episode didn't help because there's a moment where when Spock throws the throws the rock down and it explodes. They used TNT on set that close to the actors. I know exactly. That's my look too. What? Uh, so. Uh, Christman says, uh, if you look in this episode, uh, when the when when Shatner puts his hands up to his ears, 
when the concussion hits and the three stars nearly fall over. Oh, man. You're looking really close to that. And uh, the problem is that this explosion then worsened Shatner's tinnitus. Yeah. So it got worse because of this one. So way to go, effects guys. Yeah, you got to dial back the pyrotechnics. Yeah, more, and he, even DeForest Kelly said... Thing. Right. Another, uh, as we said in Arena, another bonus for CGI. We don't have to do the explosion right next to our, uh, oh, exactly. our heroes. And, you know, the thing is, is you could, with CGI, you could have an explosion that doesn't look like, you know, basically a gunpowder explosion. Right? Yeah. You, know, you could have an explosion that, that, like, has weird, you know, phasey things coming off it and weird lights and sparkles and whatever you whatever you could think of the explosion could look like that it as we see at the end of this episode doesn't have to be just like fire boom wow if you remember at the end of this episode when they blow up uh they blow up val's cave there's like a there's like a sparkler or something in the <laughs> helping blow it up they didn't even blow up that set they just used a sparkler to blow it up and lighting effects DeForest Kelly also said that he uh, he too got a slight case of tinnitus from this uh, episode as well. He said even two decades later, he was still reminded of this episode thanks to that explosion. So Jay Jones, who was just the uh, stuntman I was talking about, said... And apparently uh, they, they don't like hand-out hearing protection either. Yeah, actually, uh, Celeste mentions that too. She's like, they didn't even give us cotton for our ears or anything. You think they would have learned their lesson from Marina? Or, you know, like, how long have they been doing this? You think there's yeah, got to be, like, movies from the 20s where they were like, you know what? Using the real using the real thing turns out to be a problem for the actors. Let's, you know, come up with something. You know, like like shaking those uh, those big sheets of metal for thunder. we got to come up with something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It looks good. Doesn't make a noise. We actually have to add the sound in in post. So Jay Jones, who I was just talking about, the stuntman, he said, uh, I had to lobby director Joseph Pibney for that scene. He was a dear man and refused to let me do it. He felt it was too dangerous, but I held out. I'm saying, I don't want to, I don't want the stunt the Mickey Mouse way, he said. So uh, Joseph Pibney decided to do it. Well, I was wrong. I totally got hurt. There was a jumper trampoline buried in the ground. And when I hit the trampoline, the explosion was supposed to go off. Well, the timing had to be perfect, but it wasn't. The special effects guy was like a hundredth of a second too late. I was directly over it when the blast hit. In the episode, you can see me. I literally get blown toward the camera. The force hit me in my stomach, burned my side, blew off skin on my rib cage, and impacted all of this dirt into my sinuses. <laughs> I couldn't open my eyes or breathe. They rushed me to the hospital emergency room. Dun, dun, dun. He goes, there's another, uh, there's another take from a different camera on that episode where it just looked like I got a huge fireball. And they wanted to use that, but the NBC censors wouldn't let them. <laughs> well, we accidentally heard him. Let's at least use the footage. Yeah, right. Exactly. And that's it I've got on the behind-the-scenes stuff. I guess, <laughs> as always, it's time to get to it. Captain's log. Starting. It's five-year mission. So the Star Trek fanfares opens up on this one. Dun, 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 uh, The Enterprise is orbiting a planet, but we don't go into the ship. We go right to that planet. We see uh, Kirk, Chekhov, and three red shirts we don't know. One female, 
played by Celeste. Then uh, they're followed by two more red shirts and McCoy. McCoy, after saying he wants to move, uh, he wants to move in. It's a really pretty place. It's Eden. He follows it up with, uh, but you know, it's a shame that we have to intrude <laughs> after saying, hey, I want to move here, but uh, I'm sorry, we got to break up this great place, but I'm going to do it. Uh, Kirk says that the last scout ship reported strange readings. We just got to do what we're told, he says. Chekhov says it reminds him of home. Uh, Eden, says Bones. It's more like Eden. Yes, Eden. It was just outside of Moscow. <laughs> oh, check off, you crazy man. <laughs> Kirk mutters, uh, oh, yeah, outside Moscow, huh? And then goes back to, like, commanding the troops. <laughs> then suddenly this plant turns towards a red shirt and is instantly killed by it. Oh, my gosh. Kirk is immediately pissed. Is this paradise, he says. Actually, I think that, that I wrote that, and I think that that's actually a better line than whatever it was he said. <laughs> you know, it's funny because when you're turning out these like these scripts, especially for these guys who are, you know, like Gene Kuhn, who like cranks them out in one week or whatever, <laughs> you know, sometimes you just don't get the best wording of a line, the best. Right. You know, actually, the best example I have of this is in um, is in the original X Men movie, X Men One. So I'm, I'm listening to the commentary. It's this great moment that happens in the commentary where uh, they're all sitting around and uh, Storm is like, you know, creating the storm and she's fighting Toad. And then all of a sudden, you know, she starts like conjuring up all this lightning. And uh, she says to uh, she says to Toad, do you know what happens when you kill a Toad? She summons the, the thing and then says, uh, it dies like everything else. And then you hear one of the producers go, you know, I never know why you guys did never say uh, it croaks. <laughs> and you just hear everybody else in the room go silent for a second, all like, where were you three months ago? <laughs> you're just like, yep, exactly. That's, that's the worst. You know, you're like somebody else comes up with the perfect line and you're like, oh, now you come up with that line. Great. <laughs> So we got the opening credits, and we come back to it. Captain's log, stardate 3715.3. Scotty informs Kirk that suddenly they're losing a bit of something in the antimatter pods. So we hear a lot about these antimatter pods, right? This has like become the new standard of whatever's helping run the engine. Right. I guess there are two pods connected to the matter antimatter. But anyway, the antimatter so, pod unit. And well, it may we'll be elaborate on this, and so you'll have an antimatter pod and a matter pod, and they're shooting, you know, particles, very small amounts of matter and antimatter at each other. And oh. then in the next generation, we see that vertical thing with the light, and that's yep. where they're interacting. Ah, gotcha. Other than the long hallway that's uh, behind that grate <laughs> in the original series, I guess. Yeah. I don't yeah, know exactly. what's going on there. Um... I think it's storage. You just got boxes down there. <laughs> barrels. <laughs> it's the uh, it's just a bunch of barrels of 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 Gosh. Of... <laughs> Yes. <laughs> That's what it is. So they're losing uh, something in the antimatter pods and it may be caused by the planet's strange electromagnetic atmosphere. 
which I was wondering then, wouldn't that cause interference on the transporter? I feel like that's a thing where the transporter, maybe not. Spock maybe, then tells. Maybe they compensated and didn't tell us. Oh. <laughs> so, you know, in the beam down, which we didn't get to see because they start in the thing. They're like, whoa, got some strange uh, interference in the planet's surface. Compensating. All right, we're ready, sir. You know, all right, beam us down. You know, I know that. Slightly longer beam down with some extra sparkle effects, and then we're good. I mean, I know that that's an extra set that they would have had to shoot on, but at least that would have given us like a little, and that would have set up the electromagnetic, you know, atmosphere as well. Right. Mm -hmm. And for a while, they could have been thinking it was a natural phenomenon rather than ball. Spock then tells Kirk, uh, there's some sort of subsurface vibrations and it's being artificially produced. And then we get this musical sting. So I guess that's important to remember that there's that musical vibration going on. Dun dun. Kirk then sends a recon team up ahead to scout out the humanoid village, but make no contact. Just report back to me. Spock then uses the tricorder and senses that there's a humanoid hiding behind the bush. And he's crazy agile. Chekhov then decides to make a move on the female red shirt. <laughs> Kirk comes back on saying, I know you two are interested in each other, but we're not here to do field research on human biology. <laughs> and after all, I mean, who is this guy to talk? Let's be honest. Uh, they, they, <laughs> they then move out. We're going to move out. Formation Alpha, which is apparently just a straight line. Uh, they then find a colorful rock that Scott breaks in, or Scott Spock breaks in half while doing a casual examination of it. He then tosses one half of it aside, and boom, it explodes. That was the explosion we were talking about before. Kirk says, "Be careful where you throw your rock." <laughs> so that was a fun line too. <laughs> the Garden of Eden with landmines. That's right, says Kirk. Back on the ship, uh, Scotty then calls down to say that the antimatter pods are now inert. Some kind of beam caused them to be this way. Spock then sees a plant turning towards Kirk, and he rushes and he pushes Kirk out of the way, but instead, boom, <gasps> gets himself killed. Spock's dead. And you thought that this only happened during the third movie. Bones uh, gives him a, hip, uh, a hypo, but it doesn't seem to work. But maybe he's not dead. Maybe he's just very unconscious. Kirk then calls for Scotty to beam him up. But they can't get him off the planet. Something is inhibiting it. Close on Scott. Then close on Kirk as we go to commercial. Back so, at it. Close on Scott. Close on Kirk. Close on Duncan Hines. <laughs> oh, so you're saying Scott? Uh, Kirk was just really hungry, is what you're saying. <laughs> He'd like a cake. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Scotty continues to investigate what's happening to the ship and why it's become so crazy. Spock then sits up. Out of nowhere, Kirk asks him to explain himself. What was he doing? Spock says, hey, I was just trying to get you out of the way. I was just too clumsy to get myself out of the way. Kirk says, uh, well, next time, yell. I can step out of the way just as quickly as the next man. And then he goes, do you know how... <laughs> and then he goes, Kirk says, uh, 
uh, do you know how much Starfleet has invested in you? <laughs> and Spock starts to answer, 122200 I do. Well, okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> What was he going to answer? In money? In credits? I thought there were no credits in the future. But there's always time. There's always time. Which is why if you really want to figure out what things are worth in radically different uh, tech levels, you, you use time. How long does Suddenly. it take to get a nail? What? How long does it take to get a nail? Like to make one? Yeah. I mean, if I need a nail... I want to hang this picture. I need a nail. So, you know, and you're like, well, I have to make a three-day trip to the blacksmith, and he'll spend half a day making my nail. And I have, well, I mean, part of that time would be he's like heating up the kiln. If I get my nail, I come back, it's three days, and I can hang my picture. <laughs> but for, for us, it'd be like, you know, getting nails. And then for them, it's like, replicator? Nail. 12 penny, please. Ooh, I have a nail. <laughs> so suddenly the weather turns dark. Clouds roll in. Lightning. And then we lose another red shirt as he's struck by lightning. That's two already. Storm quickly passes. Does it pass because we got rid of one of the crew members? We don't know! Mallory calls it uh, calls in, but Kirk can't hear it. There's static in the way. It's a primitive society, we hear, but that's all we get. But he also gets the coordinates out, and Kirk and the rest of the crew double-time it to Mallory's position. Then we see Mallory. He's running for something. And then he steps on that rock, and he blows up. Oh, no! Kirk is sad. Kirk knows the family. His father helped him, helped him get into the academy. Kirk, ever the captain, blames himself Spock assures him that uh, it's something that he couldn't have prevented. It's all part of the mission. It's not even that important a mission to lose three of my men, says Kirk. Yeah, so this is, uh, this is a problem, right? So in our setup between like good drama and realistic stuff, it's realistic that like you, you go down to like just do a regular survey and a series of mishaps or, you know, unexpected interactions with the, the local geology, fauna, flora, whatever. And you got three dead crewmen. And you're like, this is all we're here to do is a stupid survey. You know, right. This is messed up. But that's realistic. And But people dying, of course, is dramatic. It, it can, of course, lead to the. The thing we're in post, you know, like years later, you know, fridge logic is like after the show, you think about it and you're like, wait a minute. So this is like, I don't know, years later, when you when you think of Star Trek as a whole, you're like, boy, those red shirts, they drop like flies. Right. Four of them in this episode. Yeah. And what they're trying to do, of course, is, is establish that we went to a dangerous place, a place that was not only naturally dangerous, as the unknown ought to be, right? Right. I mean, you think about uh, Columbus, you think about the Mayflower, you think about Jamestown. People show up and they drop like flies, mm -hmm. right? Because they're, they're, they're food, they have food problems, they have disease problems, they have 
uh, you know, supply problems of every kind. And, you know, it would, it would likely be the same, you know, for these guys, right? But, of course, that creates this impression that, like, <laughs> I think I explained it last week. The red shirt beams down, dies. Red shirt beams down, dies. <laughs> we got drama. We got realism. Spock notices the native is back. Kirk has a plan to catch him. So then, uh, as a distraction, Spock and Chekhov have a little uh, fight here, which is really funny, where <laughs> Chekhov is, like, back-talking Spock. <laughs> it's really cute. Uh, then Kirk catches the native and punches him. And do you know what the native does? He cries. Kirk promises, confused, promises he won't hit him again. But you struck me, says the alien. In English, by the way. I guess that I guess Ball taught him English. I guess that's what we're getting at. Or we're having a we're we're back to a conflict between realism and drama. Right. Because it, it, it plays out much less funny if he's like, oh, Kirk asks who he is. He says, I am the eye of all. Everything he sees, Ball sees. But he has a name. His name is Akuta. Kirk wants to speak to Val. But Akuta says, no one speaks to Val but me. Then uh, Spock notices that Akuta has an antennae growing out of his out of his head, hairline, something. Akuta tells tells us that Val put them there so that he can understand his commands. Akuta says he will take them to the people of Val. Then Scotty calls down. Something like a tractor beam has caught the Enterprise, and they're starting to lose orbit. Oh, no. Kirk gives three suggestions, all of which Scotty, of course, has already tried. That's Scotty. He's so smart. To counteract the tractor beam, Scotty puts, uh, puts the uh, impulse engines on full power, but there's only 16 hours before we burn up for sure. Dun, dun, dun. We have another one of those episodes that we've seen a couple of times, right? Where something bad is happening on the planet, something bad is happening on the ship, and Kirk must solve whatever's going on on the planet to also save the ship. Now we got the ticking clock, 16 hours. Tick, 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 tick. Now we have a, a, a small problem. Okay, hit me. So any kind of thing that's going to interact over distance you're typically going to get some kind of square law involved right mm -hmm. so light dissipates in three dimensions so that's actually a cube problem right gravity interacts in linear distance that's a square problem so this beam in order to to normally they say this in star trek right so tractor beams are like you got to get close you're basically manipulating things right outside the ship, right? You know, you can try to get something that's further away. And, of course, even in that early episode uh, with Mud, you know, he's, tr he's trying to extend the shields out at such a range that he's, like, blowing, uh, what were they, lithium circuits, you know, left and right. So this planet must be using an enormous amount of power to, 
to successfully hold a tractor beam on the Enterprise so that a thing that could go to warp speed, it's got that much power, is like held and like, oh, there's something we can do. Well, it is both eating away at the uh, antimatter pods as well as, uh, you know, I mean, it, ultimately it's expending energy that's going to be its downfall. So, in that respect, it's a good setup for the, uh, for the end of the episode. Yeah, lots, lots of Star Trek involves energy management problems. You know, when Apollo is holding the ship, well, it's, it's, it's got to, like, tire him out. Notice that when he casts little lightning bolts at us, he's, he's, he's exhausted, and then he leaves. He must have to recharge his batteries. You know, and then they come up with a plan to attack him. It's, it's an energy management problem. We get lots of those in Star Trek. Which, as you say, is very uh, important in many of the games, right? Is your That's right. Energy management. So in, in Starfleet Battles, which is kind of one of the first classic Star Trek games, you have boxes you know, that you tick off as you expend energy. So because of this information he gets from Scotty, Kirk demands to talk to Vol again. And this time, for some reason, Akuda consents. Maybe he will speak to you. Uh, but he will not speak to you. He will only speak to me, says, says Akuta. They find themselves in the next scene standing in front of a cave opening. And the opening is shaved like a snake. Fangs and all. Red light and smoke emanate from its mouth. Commercial. Back at it. Stardate 3715.6. Spock scans the opening. The center seems to be further into the mouth. Spock attempts to step closer to take more readings, only to be thrown aside by some sort of force field. Akuta tells us that they uh, may be able to speak with Val when he's hungry. They can only hope. So Akuta then takes him to the village. More red aliens are here, also with platinum hair. Kirk asks, uh, where are the others? The children. Akuta says, uh, the replacements? Oh, they are not needed, he says. The female redshirt then asks about love. Oh, the touching and the holding. <laughs> Which I thought would have, like, why isn't that just in the perfect Jerry, Jerry Lewis voice, right? <laughs> oh, the touching and the holding. <laughs> no, and forbidden the is that. The holding and the holding and the touching. <laughs> exactly. To which uh, Bones replies to the lack of uh, lack of holding and touching as a uh, well, so much for paradise, says Bones. This is also uh, continuing the metaphor of the Garden of Eden, right? No, no touching, no holding, no touching, no kissing, no sexy time. I don't know. I think you're reading some kind of Victorian <laughs> book of Genesis. <laughs> uh, the ladies of the tribe then give them flowers. Yeah. Kirk says to Spock, uh, it really does something for you. And Spock goes, yes, it makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Spock has a lot of like actually funny lines in this episode. Mm -hmm. Pretty great. Akuta gives them a house and says uh, there'll be more food and drink on the way. Kirk then checks in with Scotty. They devise a plan to put every ounce of energy that they can from the ship and put it into impulse power. 
do whatever you can, even if it means shedding the nacelles, he says. That's interesting. That's a new thing we didn't know that they could do is just uh, drop the nacelles at the drop of a hat. Well, so However, the ahead. original design was that you, you were supposed to have saucer separation, right, from the that beginning. Was, and it, it, was, it was too expensive. They couldn't <laughs> build the model. <laughs> I was going to say, that's my next note, actually. So the <laughs> episode's original script called for emergency saucer separation. But as you said, because uh, the budget, they couldn't do it. Yeah, so they very cleverly built it into the, the first episode of Next Generation. So once they had it... <laughs> yep, they could always use it. That's right. Bones then enters the tent, having given a, uh, uh, an examination to the natives. And he says, put simply, they are not getting old. Hence, the no need for children. There isn't even any of that important bacteria in their bodies. Spock says this ties all into his analysis that the atmosphere negates all effects from the sun. Then we hear a chime. Kirk and Spock follow the natives as they go to Vol, and they are feeding it energy, somehow with flowers. Somehow the computer is converting energy from flowers. Okay. Kirk and Spock then. That's right. They must have some kind of chlorophyll. Uh, it's a biomass. Yeah, who knows where this computer's from, so maybe that's possible. Kirk and Spock then realize that the computer must have some kind of AI in it. Now, how did they lead to this deduction? There's no way to actually know that there's a computer involved. This could be some sort of like, I mean, I guess everything in 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 the Star Trek universe is based on a computer. I guess that's kind of it. I mean, so like, what else is, con there There can't be a, an actual like God or something controlling the weather and whatnot. Well, yeah, of course not. That would be silly. That's not how Star Trek works. Then All our, our explanations are naturalistic. There will be no supernatural explanations. Right. So it's got to be a computer. Kirk then asks Spock to do some calculations to see how much energy Vol must be expending to keep pulling at the Enterprise. Hmm, clever. A little later, Bones joins them. He and Spock argue over the rights of the humanoids. Bones saying that they have a right to be unchained and untethered, while Spock says it is their right to live as they see fit. Bones pleads his case to Kirk. These people aren't growing. They aren't changing. They aren't evolving. Oh, so this connects to uh, Errand of Mercy, which is the episode that I just <laughs> released this this last week. Uh, but it connects. You know, we got we talked about the stagnating people, right? Errand of Mercy. We also talk about a uh, uh, Return of the Archons. Same thing. Uh, you know, an, an idea where. You know, uh, the people are not evolving, although they had a their own reason in that one we find out at the end. Uh, Spock goes on to say, but they are healthy and they are happy and it works for them. Before Kirk needs to come up with an answer, Scotty calls again. We find out that the power has been... Uh, we find that the power has been draining from the planet. So whatever's uh, been affecting the pod is also coming from the planet. Back in their hut, the yeoman, we finally discovered that she's a yeoman, not just some kind of like female security red shirt, uh, is worried about the ship crashing. Kirk says, that hasn't happened yet. Take a seat. Eat something. 
Kirk and the yeoman and Spock all postulate that if uh, what it would mean if one of the natives were to perish, how would they how would they balance? How would they create a new thing? And uh, even the yeoman wonders if they could even discover sex without ever mentioning the word sex. So uh, Celeste Yarnall has this to say about that. Uh, is that uh, at the time of the filming of this uh, ep or this uh, this scene, the uh, standards and practices were on set, and uh, she said they were really concerned. They didn't want it to be thought. First of all, they didn't want it to be thought that I was spending too much time in this hut with these four or five men. So that's the first thing. But then it was explained to them by the producers that you know, hey, this is the twenty third. Third century, both men and women are equal. There's no reason for the concern, but it didn't matter because this is the tw not the 23rd century. This is 1967, and this is American TV. So they had to make some changes, and uh, some good moments were unfortunately left on the cutting room floor. It's weird though. You know, you'd think so. You've got a group of people, right? And she's just one member of the crew. And what they're talking about, especially when it's things like the energy that the all must be expending to get the ship and you know, social development. And yeah, there's this one piece of their development that you're, you know, or their biology that you're curious about that may be a little bit salacious. But it'd be way, way weirder to have, like, one man and one woman in this this hut for a long time and, like, you don't know what they're doing. <laughs> right? I mean... Depends on where your brain goes, man. Yeah, the... the uh, so, having a bunch of people sit around and, and you know, discuss physics, right, which you got a, a large group of mixed company, seems to be like the most unobjectionable thing. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> so uh, Kirk then uh, hands the floor over to Mr. Spock saying, you're the science officer. Why don't you explain it to the young lady? Which, of course, Mr. Spock is then uncomfortable to do. And then even... Uh, and then he's like, well, maybe the computer will teach them how to do it. To which Bones is like, yeah, that'd be great. Let's have a computer teach them all about sex. Great. But I'm even less worried about the sex. I'm more worried about, like, what about the actual, like, birthing process? I think that the, the natives would have a lot more trouble with that than they would uh, figuring out the sex, because that's the easy part. So it would, it would depend on whether or not, like humans, they ended up with a much larger brain than than is easy to birth. So like right. chimpanzees have you know very easy birthing. Because their heads aren't so big. We then see uh Ball talking to Akuda. And all Akuda says, I promise that it will be done. Oh, something in the making here. Then we finally get this little like love scene ish between Chekhov and the Yeoman. Hints of it were all along in the episode, and now we finally get the payoff here as they uh, finally uh, kiss and make out. And we see some natives skulking around in the background. Then the natives discuss it. Why do they do it? It is not a dance. It does not serve all. But it did seem pleasant. How do you know it doesn't serve all? <laughs> well, they, Ball says that they're not allowed to do it, so I guess it doesn't. Oh, it's forbidden. Yes. Because uh, otherwise, all you'd really know is that Ball hasn't asked for it. Good point, good point. If, if, if Ball, though, with, with most things, once Ball says no kissing, you're going to get kissing. Right? 
right? I guess. I mean, uh, part of the whole thing of the apple itself is like, do not eat from the from the tree of knowledge. Oh man, I totally want to know what's going on with the tree of knowledge now. What does that fruit taste like? What happens when you eat it? Oh man, and of course some of the warnings. You know, like you will know the nature of good and evil. Yeah, I, I, you know, <laughs> I don't see the downside. It's almost like we would gain, like, we'd be fully conscious beings. And in a sense, that's the problem here, right? Is that, so you get a really good argument from Spock about let's leave them alone. Everything seems, you know, cool here. Let's just not interfere, right? And then the counter argument is these people are being herded, right? They're being treated like a herd. They're being managed by Vol for what reason? We don't know. Well, to keep him going. If nothing bring else. Bring him flowers, apparently, right? Yeah. To eat. Yeah, I mean, it, it just could be, like, they are so unproductive. I can't, like, they can't be distracted by anything or they won't bring me enough flowers. So just keep bringing the flowers. Nothing else. Nothing, you know, no distractions. No cultural inventions. No sex. No, nothing that will distract you from bringing me as many flowers as possible. Because they are so resource poor, these flowers. I got, I got huge energy needs, people. Especially so, right now. Yeah. I've been saving up for this for, like, decades. So you, you get this problem, right, of, on the one hand, they're happy, right? On the right. other hand, they're a herd. They're managed. They're not free. They're not, they, sh- they should be sentient. They have the capacity to be sentient. Mm-hmm. But they're not. They're, they're like going to see dolphins at the you know, at a park, and you're like, oh, look, the dolphin catches a ball, it gets a fish. Oh, look, the dolphin, and you're like, the dolphin seems like he'd be much happier not in this environment, right? It makes us sad. You know, or killer whales is another one, right? Killer whales don't last a long time in the the parks. And so you have this desire, let's free them, let's liberate them. And to do that, one of the things we have to give them is consciousness. And to do that, you have to eat the apple. You cannot be the naive, oh, look, we're in Eden and everything is provided for us. We don't know good and evil. We don't, we don't, we don't realize we're naked. You know, right. we, don't, we don't know what's, what's wrong about stuff until we eat the apple. you got to eat the apple. And, of course, that would be a very Star Trek point of view, right? Is that you got to right. eat the apple. Well, I mean, know. that's how it ends up. We haven't gotten to it yet, but, of course, we're going to get... Uh, uh, I can't remember the name of the episode. Where, where Kirk gets split into two, right? Yeah, Mirror Mirror. Mirror Mirror. Which is funny because by the time this episode airs, that has already aired. Uh-huh. This, and yeah. it, the necessity, right, you, you've got to eat the apple. you got to have the good and the bad because Kirk, yeah. you know, without his evil side, is a weak and ineffective captain. Stagnating. That's right. Although probably so, uh, tend to bring flowers to Vol. <laughs> right. So the natives uh, attempt to kiss, and not surprisingly, they like it. So they keep doing it. Akuta then catches them. Vol <gasps> speaks to him and tells him that the men of Vol must meet with him after the strangers are asleep. And then they meet. Akuta tells them we are to kill the strangers. But they don't understand. Kill? What's that? 
Akuta says, Vol has explained it to me. And then he explains to them, by killing a, le a melon. A melon? A melon. Of some kind. Commercial. Yeah, okay. He doesn't mean kill, he means smash. Well. He had to kill something that was like scampering around and moving, and then he smashes it. And I was like, look, it doesn't move anymore. It doesn't scamper. It does not infect us with bad ideas. I was just trying to be funny. Yeah. Smashing <laughs> <laughs> a melon is not killing a melon. Here has been the problem with you and I growing up. <laughs> I'm just trying to be funny, and then you explain it. I'm like, well, that's not funny anymore. <laughs> uh, so anyway, here's an interesting thought. 12 minutes left of this episode, right? And we have a lot to wrap up. We got. I'm thinking at this point, we got to find out what the computer is, right? I'm also thinking we got to find out how it got there. I just thought that those were going to be natural things that were going to be explained in this episode. But apparently they're not. Uh, we also have to know what will happen to the natives, uh, whether the ship will be okay. You know, and so it's funny. We have all of this stuff that has to be wrapped up in 15 minutes, especially for me, the what's the computer, how it got there. Wouldn't that have been interesting to find out? But yet, you know, we spent 15 minutes in the first half of this episode, you know, with plants that kill red shirts, you know what I mean? So it's interesting that it's like, how can we, you know, there's a better way to set up this thing, which is or funny because I, go ahead. We make it a two-part episode. <laughs> I almost mentioned that earlier. I was like, see, <laughs> so this is another one of those episodes for you where had we had, uh, you know, episodic television, it would have worked right. out better. That's right. So the, the episode one would be about going to, you know, this, the, our mission, exploring strange new worlds. Seeking out new life and new civilization—it's dangerous. Yeah, we don't know what's out there. We get surprised, caught off guard by things that we didn't know were dangerous. And then episode two would be about ball. So it's funny I mentioned all of that because uh, here's what DC Fontana had to say about this episode: the story structure here is bad. We are at the end of Act Two before we even meet Vol, who's our heavy. There's no decisive action on the part of our principals. We lose the ship for long periods of time, and nothing's happening up there anyway. There's no sense of jeopardy or urgency about these people's predicament, and the resolution is far too easily and contrived. Recommend a total rewrite and restructure. <laughs> okay, well, that's pretty much how I felt about it, too. I'm just like, we're, you know, we're wasting 15 minutes on, you know, plants the kill when we could be, like, discovering the secret of all or, you know, anything like that. You could still keep Gene Kuhn's ideas of, you know, what this story is supposed to be about, the Genesis story and all of that, but anyway, sorry. So let's go. Kirk and Spock are back in their hut. Everyone else is sleeping. Kirk says, Bones was right. These people are just existing. But Spock says, how do we then break the prime directive? Which also connects us to Errand of Mercy, which I just, you know, released because uh, we both met, our eye was like, doesn't this violate the Prime Directive? And you were like, I don't know if we've even gotten to the Prime Directive yet. Plus, well, those guys were Federation people, weren't they? No, Aaron DeMercy is uh, the uh, the glowy people. <laughs> you know, the people who are like, it's the it's the fight between Core oh, and... Oh, the Organians. Yeah, I was thinking of the Paradise Syndrome. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, so as you were making all your references, I was I was imagining people with spores... <laughs> and they're like, oh, now I'm totally content. 
Yeah, no, not that one. See, because I, I was focused on the contentment of your pre-edonic state, right? Gotcha. Yeah, good thought, good thought. I was thinking, yeah, no, I was thinking about the Organians before we know that they're like supernatural godlike people, you yeah. know, how like <laughs> we think that their civilization is like, you know, stuck and they haven't changed in 10,000 years and blah, blah, blah. Or they just become beings of light and they, they just don't bother to change the setting. <laughs> right. Because we don't use yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it doesn't matter. In a room that you never use, you know. That's the room where we become physical beings. The rest, <laughs> the rest of the house, we're all luminescent. Doesn't matter. But anyway, Spock's talks to the Prime Directive, and uh, and I was thinking, haven't them just being here violated the Prime Directive already? I mean, we got the natives kissing each other, learning about death. I mean, this is contamination. Prime Directive's already exactly contamination. Perfect word. So then Kirk then mentions one of the things that you say is like the stanchions of Star Trek, you know, freedom of choice, the right to do what, you know, they want, agency, all of these things is pretty much what Kirk comes back with. He basically agrees with McCoy. Kirk then checks in with Scott. Scott says uh, he needs uh, about a uh, half an hour. He needs about a half an hour to get the uh, ship uh, on full impulse power going. Kirk points out that in 45 minutes, the ship will be pulled into the atmosphere. And Scott says, I know, I'm cutting things close. Ah, there we go with the Irish again. Anyway, Spock returns from a quick look around and finds that uh, all the people are gone. Where are they at? So Kirk decides he's going to take this message right to Vol. We come in peace, but then the storm clouds gather. Scott tells us that... that uh, There is a strong jump in the wavelengths. That's what he says. <laughs> I wrote that exactly. But it's like, what does that mean? There's a strong jump, jump in the wavelengths. Anyway, so uh, Ball's eyes glow and the lightning attacks. Spock is knocked out again and Kirk carries him off. Back in the village, Bones diagnoses Spock with second degree burns. And then the village attacks. They kill the last red shirt. And then they come after the rest and more villagers flood into the scene. But even though they are equipped with these fancy bonk bonk weapons, um, bonk bonk, bonk, bonk uh, they a, unfortunately that's a different episode altogether. That is a different episode altogether. <laughs> uh, they are not ready to take on a fully trained Federation crew who knows how to fight, right? Kirk and Spock get a few licks in, as does the female yeoman who kicks and punches a few of the male villagers, and then it's all over. <laughs> the villagers are all lying dead. Kirk sends the uh, natives to the hut to be secured. And then Spock comes at us with a moral. The good doctor seems to be concerned as to whether or not the Valians have attained true human stature. I submit there is no cause for worry. They have taken their first step. They have learned to kill. Aboard the ship, Scotty has done it. They have put the, uh, the ship into the reverse, and it starts to work. They're pulling away. But all of a sudden... All of the systems crash. It doesn't work. Kirk laments what he guesses will be the death of 400 people. Again, pulling the captain's thing. I should have seen the warning signs. Orders. Always following orders. Suddenly, the dinner bell rings and the Valiants try to head out to feed Vol. You have the key lesson for Kirk, right? This is his little arc, right? Mm -hmm. Because his lesson is 
don't follow orders. <laughs> no, follow your gut, do what you think is right. Right. And so when we see the Kirk of the movie era, who's just like off the rails all the time, right? He's just doing whatever he wants. Yeah. It's stuff like this that gets him there. Because season one, he's very much a kind of follow orders kind of guy. Right? I mean he may he may know how to work within that world to like do things different than he was told. But he is he is not the kind of movie era just whatever. And it's stuff like this that, that brings about his big change. Suddenly the dinner bell rings and the Valiants head out to feed Vol. But Chekhov stops them, and Kirk realizes this is the answer. Do not let them feed Vol. Don't let anyone feed Vol. He then calls up to the ship to see if Scotty has phasers, and luckily he still does. The readings are getting weaker, says Spock. Spock thinks aloud Kirk's plan. You can weaken Vol further by attacking his shields. The problem, though, is that it's very possible that Vol has been leaving on his things so that when the dinner bell rings, he's got dinner on his jacket when the dinner bell rings. Experimental ball, salivating ball, good ball. Waiting for the dinner bell to do the bell thing. Dinner bell, dinner bell ring. Sorry. I don't want a pizza. I don't want a piece of Peter Brittle. I don't want a pear. I don't want a bagel. Or a bag of beef or a beer. <laughs> I just want a big pile of flowers. Waiting for the dinner bell to do the bell thing. Dinner bell, dinner bell ring. Scotty calls for Ball. Whoops. Scotty fires on Ball. That's what I mean. <laughs> He's just getting the engine room. Ball! <laughs> it's like Kirk yelling Khan. In, uh, exactly. Khan. Okay. Third time. Scott fires on Ball. The energy shields weaken. Ball then calls for a storm? Wouldn't this weaken him more, I wondered? The phasers continue. And then that firework goes off in its mouth. It's like a sparkler. I don't know what it's doing. But then the eyes go dark. Scotty ceases fire. Then we get a shot of a blue sky as the, sky, as the clouds clear. Which is weird because the sky behind Vol is red. Whatever. Scotty then tells us that the antimatter powers are working again and engineering is working on the rest of the circuits. A little later. The circuits, the, the, the circuits exactly. A little later, the villagers are gathered in front of what was once fall. Kirk stands there and lets them know that they can do it. This is what we call freedom, he says. I'm just waiting for somebody to go, sounds awful. Yeah, exactly. So I, I could just imagine him standing in like in, uh, you know, 1995 Russia, right? 
-hmm. listen, you've been liberated from your Soviet, you know, oppression, and, you know, now everything will be wonderful. Okay, we're leaving now. Bye. <laughs> Good luck to you. It's going to take a little bit longer to figure out how to do that. You're going to have to build a bunch of rules, like, you know, and so one of the things that's missing from Star Trek is the idea of emergent order, right? That um, orders evolve naturally over a long period of time, right. right? And that the Federation has the benefit of all these separate planets that have separately evolved a kind of, you know, ethos that works in harmony with each other to create this federation and they can, you know, share and, and intermix and so forth. But every one of them has stuff like on earth, you've got the, the common law system in which judges and juries figured out mm -hmm. who was in the wrong and what should be done if a tree falls on another guy's piece of property and breaks something. Right. Yeah. You go, well, the tree was on my land and, and I didn't make it fall. It was a storm or it was the wind. But it was my tree, and am I responsible? And well, how well do you make it? So it works all this stuff out, and this stuff happens over time, trial and error. You know, it emerges through all these different processes. And what we're doing is we're kind of beaming down, going, Well, we've just turned off your computer, and you've had no time to emerge any kind of like how to figure out. So, uh, who apparently is it appropriate to kiss and who not to kiss? We haven't worked that out, but we're we're leaving. We've given you kissing. Goodbye. <laughs> exactly. There'll be all kinds of inappropriate kissing going on, and what'll happen is they're like, "Oh my God, the kissing is out of control. We got to ban kissing." Do you think if this was a next generation episode that we would have heard something like, uh, but don't worry, the Federation is going to be sending you a, uh, you know, someone to help you grow your. A team of Deltons will be sent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or something. I don't know if the Deltons would be the best help. They'd, they'd be like, no more kissing, more kissing. You should have more kissing. That's right. I don't know. Thetasoids? Who should we send? Yeah. I just somehow think that there would have been a, a thing like, hey, you know, we're going to help you build your society, not just like, right. hey, figure it out for yourselves. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Maybe but, we find out later that it was what happened on this planet that <laughs> sets up that little commission. That's exactly right. And, uh, but you do get much more of a sense in the original series that this is Captain Cook, right? Yeah. You're in the Pacific, you show up. You know, you, you give alcohol to someone on Fiji. I'm going to switch my islands now. Things don't work out well. And you're like, okay, well, we got to go because I'm supposed to explore the whole Pacific, not stay here and help you get through your you know alcohol problems. Bye. Whereas Next Generation is kind of much more like, I don't know, like after World War II and like America's going to marshal plan or the Federation's going to marshal plan its way, you know, through problems. Oh, did we contaminate this in a culture? Fine, we're going to send teams to solve the problem. This feels good to Captain Cookie. Uh, that's my favorite cereal. I like Captain Cookie. <laughs> Kirk goes oh, on to say. <laughs> Mm. 
chocolate chip Captain Cookie. <laughs> I like the peanut butter Captain Cookie better. Kirk goes on to say, uh, plus you'll learn about what men and women are supposed to be like. You'll learn about love. You'll like it. Which then brought up the question, is there enough genetic material here to keep these people going on into the future? <laughs> Just curious. <laughs> There's only like 18 people there, it seems like. I don't know if that's enough. 18 is not enough. You need like 50. Yeah. Maybe there are more on the planet elsewhere. I hope so. <laughs> you got a planet with 18 people? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You're like, this is messed up. Ball did not plan ahead. He did not plan for his own then, destruction. Right. Kirk then mentions uh, children again. And then the two in front who are making out the younger couple are like, what are children? Oh, you'll find out. <laughs> Bye. Exactly. Exactly. I was like, that sounds awful, too. <laughs> and then it was funny because that that couple, but the couple does what you just did. They just start laughing, like, "Oh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know what we're laughing at, but it's funny." We're nervous. This is nervous laughter. This is <laughs> <funny> laughter. <laughs> I guess we're just at the end of the episode. I guess that's what that really means. Oh, but it's not the end because then we see uh, Kirk climbing out of the Jeffrey's tube that he was just like at the beginning of uh, Muck Time. Kirk and Spock find a. Uh, Oh, sorry, sorry. Kirk finds Spock and Bones continuing their argument, which is fun because this isn't a dinner or in the rec room, like someplace where they right. accidentally meet. It's in the hallway. So, you know, it's just like, hey, we're two buddies just hanging out in the hallway talking to each other, or, which is great. They, they were all working. They were all like walking down the hallway, the three of them. And Kirk's like, wait a minute. I got to go check something. And he crawls into a pipe. <laughs> and the other guy. I don't want to hear any more of this argument. I'm done. <laughs> and the other guy's like, where the hell did the captain go? I don't know. So what's for dinner tonight? It's a replica. You can get whatever you want. You know, that thing on the planet, it's so bothering me. I think the people should have been X. No, the people should have been Y. Captain's down there. Oh, yeah, this Jeffrey tube's in excellent condition. Got those circuits working. <laughs> That's right. These gears and, and circuits are in great condition. <laughs> Someone is oiling the machine. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Well, much like I was excited about uh, Spock inviting Bones to be uh, part of a muck time, uh, you know, I like I like it when there are the, the, these little things of friendship that we see yeah. between them, you know, mm -hmm. ship that. Um, so anyway, they're deba back to debating about what happened on the planet. Spock brings up Genesis and Adam and Eve being cast out of paradise. Have we not done the same thing to these people? Spock asks. To which Kirk responds with, are you casting me in the role of Satan? Hmm. Is there anyone else on board who looks like Satan? He continues. Spock stands there for a minute trying to uh, regain his dignity. Stands up straight and says, I don't know anyone who fits that description. Well, that is the end of the episode. Dun, dun, dun. So, sad times. that uh, They were hoping that they were going to be able to shoot this episode in only five days. But sadly... It took six and three quarters day to finish. Add in all those lightning bolts and phaser beams that ran the optical uh, bill up to $35,000. That's a total hit from start to finish. This episode ended up costing us $205,000. Oh, no. That uh, means the second season deficit has grown over $130,000. Oh, $137,000. Dun, dun, dun. 
Desi Lu is bleeding out. Doesn't sound good. Quick, sell, sell. <laughs> oh, yeah. So in the ratings, we got CBS's uh, Gomer Pyle. And then the start, the first half hour of the Friday night movie, which won the night with 40% of the take. However, Star Trek took both 8.30 and the 9 o'clock slots, taking 24% of the share, beating out Hondo on ABC. Well, that is that. That is the end of this episode. I uh, think I covered everything I wanted to cover, everything you wanted to cover, sir? Yep, you got it all. Great. I just realized I don't know what the next episode is, so let me look that up real quick. <laughs> By the way, today I uh, posted on the, our Instagram page. Uh, it's a picture of Core with his big gold sash, and then I put next to it a picture of Worf with his, and I wrote, who wore it better? <laughs> <laughs> to which I then responded with, uh, although I'm actually partial to, to the year, but that's just... I was actually, I wrote, uh, Matt likes uh, Chew Chewie's Bandolier best, but he's a Star Wars fan, so we don't listen to him. <laughs> Pretty good. All right. Open up. And we've got uh, Han has like a mini Bandolier. He can put like three cartridges in his little pocket thing right there. His best. Yeah. I never see him use those things, so I don't know what they are. They can't be very useful. If they were well, useful, so all actually, it's funny because in um, Star Wars Rebels, we actually see the Imperials using those cylinders as like key cards. Oh, really? So, yeah. So, so some sort of like the Falcon. <laughs> yeah, the keys to the Falcon, exactly. <laughs> Oh, Mirror Mirror is next. Ah, we were just talking about it. That's right. Well, that's exciting. Come back next week. We've got Mirror Mirror happening. That's a really fun, exciting episode. Oddly enough, we were just talking about it. So yay, we get more fun uh, coming next week. We get a you know some dual Kirk, dual Spock action going on, plus uh, the episode that spawned. Not only a bunch of stuff in DS9, but of course a bunch of stuff in Discovery Season 1, which I'm sure will bleed right into Season 2, which probably by this point you have all seen, but we have not yet seen yet. There's also been a fun run on some of the comics uh, dealing with like what would a next generation Mirror Universe look like, which I've been reading some of, and that has also been fun. want to catch up some more on that because I'm sure that's going to be a great times as well. Share some details. And, uh, what? What's it like in the share details in the next generation mirror universe? I thought I shared some of this before, but I'll go ahead and do it again. Um, and if I have, I'll just cut it. Uh, <laughs> so uh, obviously, the uh, war against the opposing side has not been going well for the Federation. But they uh, and uh, Kirk is currently the captain of what was his former ship? Uh, Picard, the Stargazer. Stargazer, yeah. I had a G in my brain, but I didn't know why. Uh, so he's the captain of the Stargazer, and Tasha Yar is his second in command. And you really think in the first part of the uh, of the uh, comic that it's going to be Yar who's going to kill Picard, but surprisingly, it ends up being Barkley who kills Yar. 
and so he becomes very esteemed in the uh, in Picard's thing. So he anyway, so Picard comes up with this plan, and he's just like, you know, I know that if I were to take the Inter- if I know what if I were to take the Enterprise, that uh, I would you know win this war straight out. It's the most you know strongly, most importantly, you know, it's the only one of its kind. It's the it's the best ship in the fleet. And if I were to take it from Captain Jellico, I know that I would uh, win this war. But I can't do it alone. And so he calls uh, Jordy, who with his engineering fake girlfriend, but in this one the real girlfriend, uh, has been building the Enterprise. So he, he he gets him on board, but then he has to go get Riker. He's like, I can't do this without Riker. So he goes and he he literally fights Riker in a bar and beats him, of course. And then Riker's like, all right, what do you want? And so then they set up the plan to steal the Enterprise. And so that's how the first like four or five uh, issues run. Because that makes any sense. <laughs> what do you mean? That Picard would, would defeat Riker in a bar fight? Oh, well, no, yeah, yeah. Well, I it's also... It's funny in this in this in this world too. He's like super buff, you know. Yeah, it's silly, but it's fun. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's also something with Crusher with both Wesley and Beverly. You can definitely tell that they've that there's been a romantic situation between Beverly and and Picard that has gone bad. And then Wesley pretends to be like this idiot kid, but really he's like the smartest you know person in the uh, in all of Starfleet. It's that kind of thing. It's fun. Well, maybe I'll talk more about it next week. We'll see. Anyway, well, uh, well, that wraps it up for this week. What fun. Uh, we talked more about this episode. I say this a lot. We talked more about this episode than I thought we would, so that's great. Although I did have a lot of notes, so that's also good. Uh, the recap on this one was also fun. Next week, Mirror Mirror, what have I mentioned? Find us, find us, follow us on the Instagrams because I'm always posting really dumb, stupid, funny stuff on that. Uh, plus, we got our website, the Brother Trick About. We're going to be on YouTube all the time and uh, SoundCloud and iTunes. We're all over the place. So, anywhere you might be looking, we're probably there. Come find us. Also, on Facebook, so we got a fun little group going there as well where we post all the interesting news of things that are going on. And I think that's it. I'm Matt saying goodbye. In Houston, say goodbye, Ken. Peace and long life. As always, great, and we will see everybody next week.